Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 4 of the Lumina Hospice and Palliative Care End-of-Life Podcast. My name is Bob Madar, and today we're going to talk with Dr. David Cutsforth, or Cuts as he likes to be called. As both a family physician and a caregiver for family members who were hospice patients, Cuts brings a unique perspective, and I hope you will find his comments helpful. I talk with Cuts at his home and began our discussion by asking him to reflect on how his extensive and varied experience in medicine led to his becoming involved with hospice. Sure, I'll, I'll be glad to comment about um, my participation in the healthcare field as a, as a family practice physician, uh, five years as a volunteer in the public health service, and 16 years in private practice, and then um, 19 years in a multi-specialty clinic in what was referred to as a satellite clinic. But I think it's also important that that was only one portion of what led me to be supportive of hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, I did work as a, a nurse's aide in medical school, and that gave me, I think, a whole different um, point of view of uh, being a caregiver and uh, end-of-life issues. Um, also, my wife and I did do end-of-life care for three of our four parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that caregiving um experience also was vitally important for where I ended up in being supportive of hospice. But specifically, your your question was about um, being a physician uh, for 39 years. Um, I, I think, it, I also think that practicing in rural areas like Grand Coulee, Washington, which I did for three years, and Philomath, Oregon, which I did for 36 years, mm-hmm gives you a much more intimate connection with your patients. Mm-hmm. Um, your your kids go to uh, school with their kids because there's only one grade school right. and only one middle school and only one high school um, may participate in going to church. Um, certainly we shop at the same grocery store and fill our cars up at the same gas station. So there's a, there's a more intense connection, um, I think, than when you're in an urban area and, you know, you may live 15 miles away from where you practice medicine mm-hmm. and your, your patients may commute, you know, 15 miles in the opposite direction to get to you mm-hmm. because they, they, they've heard good things about you or whatever. So, you know, I think one of the things that I think is interesting is, is, is that perspective. So if I understand this correctly, that being a, a, a family physician, in some ways it almost sounds like you have a, a good understanding of the whole person rather than as a specialist, I could see, for example, and as a specialist you might have a better understanding of a particular condition but sort of the holistic view of someone as a complete person and being connected to them from birth through death gives you a, a, a very different look and an understanding of, of them. Is that? No, I think that's true. And, and certainly uh, pediatricians are primary care physicians too from birth to 18 years of age. Mm-hmm. And internal medicine, general internists are primary care physicians for, for an 18-year-old until death. So I think they, they also have a very close connection with all healthcare problems of their patients, mm-hmm. but they don't take care of people they, from birth to death. Right. They don't deliver babies. Mm-hmm. They don't um, make house calls as often as we did in rural areas, mm-hmm. um, 
And so that led, I think, to a, as you said, more holistic uh, view of the care of patients. Could you elaborate a little bit about how that connection with people over time throughout their lives informed or, or connected to the decision and, and the actual, you know, having your parents go into hospice and, and what the reasons were for that? Well, certainly in the initial part of my career, there weren't hospices in the United States. Um, they started in England in you know the 1950s and only gradually worked their way over here. So I had um, a lot of experience with seeing death in a certain part of my patient population for the you know first I'm I'm going to say 10 years of my career uh, where I had no ability to refer to a hospice. And then the last part of my career, so um, 29 years or 28 years, I, I saw what the availability of hospice could do to make patients and their families more comfortable at the end of life and have a much more um, enriched experience in those last months and weeks and days of their life. It was much more meaningful mm -hmm. uh, for that. So I, I, I have both sides of that coin to look at. In my point of view, there's no, no comparison. Um, hospice functions, as we talked about before in the first interview, is really another pair of ears and eyes to provide the attending physician with how their patients are doing. Um, it, as practices evolve and more and more patients come, the ability to do house calls to check on your patients on a frequent basis gets to be more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. therefore, just hearing about uh, how they're doing every three months when they come in for an office visit or even every week for an office visit, you still have a gap of that week or three months. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can fill in some of those blank spots by talking to them or their family on the phone, but there's nothing like really having a healthcare worker assess um, those folks on a more frequent basis. Having hospice nurses go in and doing home evaluations um, and and letting us attending physicians know about how they're doing with bowel care and eating and breathing and taking their medication allowed us to provide much better care. And it also, I, I don't want to lose um, view of the importance of family dynamics going on because I think all of us have experienced changes in our health based on what's going on around us. You know, if people around us, um, you know, are not in a good mood um, or really don't have our welfare in mind as much, um, that affects our health, uh, our, our emotional, uh, spiritual health, but certainly even our physical health. And so having those hospice workers there to say, you know, gosh, um, the step father or, you know, the grandfather or the, his, his wife or his, his child from California just is, is not very pleasant to him and, in fact, is mean sometimes, and I, I worry about that. So hearing about that um, helps us understand why sometimes they're not doing as well as we expected and, um, and really was a help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that you mentioned in, in the previous interview that we we're talking was that you enumerated a whole bunch of other things that are equally or maybe even at least as important as that 
that are provided by hospice for the patients. And I'd like to continue on with that discussion a little bit because I think it's really an interesting thing that most of us don't think about when we think how important those things can be. Yeah, certainly. So I think for the early history of hospice in the United States, um, a lot of patients and their families thought um, a referral to hospice was a a death sentence. And Mm -hmm. really um, what it is is a whole group of complementary services that are available uh, to patients when they qualify for hospice. Once once they decide to do that, um, they not only have registered nurses that come in, they have uh, a, the accessibility of speech therapists, occupational therapists, massage therapists, physical therapists, art therapists, music therapists, um, chaplains, um, and uh, a host of other um, services that are available in some hospices, not all. Mm-hmm. But most hospices have at least the majority of the ones that I've stated. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a nurse might come by uh, once a week, but in the interim, bath aides uh, may come every day. Um, a music therapist may come once a week. A chaplain can come pretty much as often as um, a person uh, decides their spiritual spiritual needs uh, require one. Um, the speech therapist can come, um, and certainly technicians to adjust oxygen and breathing machines and IV medications and stuff. So, I mentioned to Cuts that it seemed to me advances in medical technology could, in some cases, prolong life at the cost of a reduced quality of life and that this might pose some potential problems for patients. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I think the, the advances in technology have, been, have done wondrous things in medicine, including a, a lot of cures and a lot of um, really added years of life, even if it can't be cured. And I, I don't mean to demean that at all. Right. Yeah. But when there is a medical condition, a medical diagnosis that can't be cured, and it appears clear that um, there's less than six months uh, life expectancy um, that's there, then to continue to chase technology to be able to eke out a a few days or a a couple weeks um, is something that it's fine for people to choose if they if they want to do that, but I think there's more and more uh, individuals uh, coming to the conclusion that they want um, the best quality of life, not the longest quantity of life, mm-hmm. if if their condition can't be cured. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to be clear. I think it's important that people um, make their own decisions about medical treatments, but. I think they should do it in an informed way. And they, they also need to know that American medicine, the default in American medicine, my belief is that you will get every available service that's out there to prolong your life. If you don't advocate as a patient uh, or if um, a person that has a medical power of attorney of a relative doesn't advocate for that person, um, Every possible technological device and medication 
will be given with the assumption that that's what the patient and the family wants, uh, unless they make, make it clear that they want comfort care only, palliative mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why it's so important to start a conversation early about documenting what you would want if you can't speak for yourself and to have that conversation with your family and and uh, legal representatives. So. Mm-hmm. And that was something we talked about earlier uh, that I thought was a really important point to me is is basically that idea that you got to have those conversations. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? And have you ever seen, for example, in, in your work where that conversation didn't get done and what some of the outcomes were of, of that disjunction that we haven't really had a conversation. Nobody's on the same page. I saw many, many situations where a family wasn't informed of uh, wishes of dad um, or that dad was changing his mind um, based on what he might have casually said before. And, um, and people disagreed with each other about what they thought dad, who was now comatose, wanted at the end of his life. There was a portion of the family that thought he should be hooked up to every possible machine and tube. And there was another group that said, oh no, dad said uh, if he had a condition like this, he would just like comfort care and to be able to go to sleep and pass peacefully. And each of them believed it was true. And dad passed eventually, uh, regardless of how much care was given. And those family members um, disliked each other for years after that, each believing that they knew the truth and each believing that they didn't, that dad's wishes weren't honored because the other, other group got a portion of uh, extra care or less care uh, provided. Um, that happens today, even with an advanced directive that's written down, if, especially if the rest of the family is not involved. Um, so even if you have um, um, a legal advanced directive, medical power of attorney, li- living will, all that written down, and you've picked your eldest daughter or eldest son uh, as your health care advocate, if the other family members are not involved during a time of crisis at the end of life, um, they're going to feel left out, and they may well feel like the other other older relative um, influence the decision mm-hmm. and, and the same conflicts um, that can arise even you know before advanced directives were formed uh, so and so again to, what I'm hearing is that the having that explicit conversation with your family members and using maybe using the advanced directive as the tool, to sort of summarize and engage in that conversation is really important because you could end up having some long-term damage to family unity, family cohesion, Mm -hmm. because of these issues being unresolved. I, I, I would put it even more intensely. I wouldn't say you could. I'm going to say you usually do have injury to family cohesiveness. Now, it may be more brief uh, in certain situations and forever in other situations, but I don't think there's ever a completely peaceful, 
passing of um, um, senior family member if everybody is not felt like they were engaged uh, in in knowing what that person's wishes were. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think families completely split apart. I mean, certainly they've done that, you know, forever based on uh, monetary inheritance things that they think oh, yeah. that somebody was somebody got more than them and it wasn't fair. But the same thing can be said with you know not at least hearing about what dad's or mom's wishes were before they passed. So mm-hmm. yeah, having the conversation, starting the process, using advanced directives uh, as a tool to uh, engage the family and say you know this is what I've I've decided and I want you to know and if you have objections to that let me know now and we'll talk about it mm-hmm. um, is the healthiest way to do that. As we wrapped up our discussion I asked Cuts if there was anything he really wanted to emphasize at the close of our conversation. Um, well I would say that um, my own personal experience and my wife's personal experience in having our parents um, have have terminal cancer and seeing how they handled it and we handled it with our siblings um, and having each of those episodes ending with very good deaths, very comfortable deaths in home situations and with family unity um, does a lot to cause me to believe what I've counseled people for years. Um, You know, I, I... I've had um, lots of people with illnesses that, you know, hopefully I'll never get. And I give people my best point of view about how things will go, but I actually don't know how it feels personally. I do know how it feels personally to be a caregiver for my father or my mother or my mother-in-law. I do know how it is to talk to my siblings about what my father or my mother said they wanted at the end of life. And helping to guide them as the oldest sibling and as the doctor who they look for for advice, Mm -hmm. but actively asking for their input and to say, if you you think our father should change his mind about this care, he's alive now. Go talk to him now. This is what he says he wants. This is his rationale as I understand it. But if you think it should be different, he's alive now. Go talk to him and see if he wants to change his mind. To see that all work well in all three of those situations and end up with siblings um, liking each other, loving each other, and feeling that uh, the parents um, had excellent end-of-life, good death situations, all helped by hospice, leads me to believe the proof is in the pudding. And certainly in N of three, two parents and a, and a mother-in-law, mm-hmm. is a small N, mm-hmm. but I've seen that consistently when I practiced with other patient families mm-hmm. that uh, made a decision. And, and that includes patients um, who wanted to be in the intensive care unit and hooked up to machines, and their family in those situations most of the time said, well, at least we tried everything for Aunt Bertha. 
Um, you know, there was nothing the doctors didn't try. And we think that she had an extra week to have Cousin Bill fly in from Fairbanks and be able to say farewell. And so we're so thankful uh, we tried everything. But that's wonderful. They, they believe and uh, had Great a wonderful point. experience. And the flip side, as you said, the other folks that say, you know, mom had a terminal diagnosis, there was no treatment that could pr provide a cure, and all the treatments that were offered had some pretty awful side effects. She moved to Maui um, and told us what she wanted. Um, we flew over there during the last week of her life and were at home uh, with hospice, and she had a wonderful life. And those siblings all also feel like mom's wishes were honored and they were involved in the process. So start your advanced directives early, have the conversation with your children and loved ones, let them know what your rationale is for your decision making, listen to your kids um, and your other relatives if they have points of view that are different and um, ultimately it's your choice, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. but document it and don't document it and put it in your safety deposit box. Right. There are lots of advanced directives in there that nobody have access for when you can't speak for yourself. So give your, your medical power of attorney, your living will uh, and your advanced directive and may, you know, copies for your kids and, um, you know, make a copy for the hospital that you use, a copy for your attending physician, your primary care physician, uh, so that everybody knows what you would want if you can't speak for yourself and who your legal representative is to medically speak for you if you can't speak. So, And that seems like good advice to me. Now it's time for us to take a moment to reflect on what we've learned from cuts about what is important at the end of life and how that might affect the way we approach our own life and death. I've learned several things that I find very helpful. Number one, it's a very good idea to be clear in your own mind about what you want to have happen at the end of your life, well in advance of actually needing services. Number two, communicate your wishes to family members and work to make sure that they are all involved in the discussion and are very clear about what you want. And three, document your wishes in an advanced directive and be sure that all family members, healthcare workers, and anyone else who might be involved with your death have a copy. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will come back for episode five when we will talk with Marsha, Illumina chaplain, as she shares what she has learned from working with people who are at the end of their lives. For more information, visit luminahospice.org.